There's a couple of things I want to do just before uh, we talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, firstly, I want to make mention of, uh, give, uh, Renee just mentioned this is our, the last um, session in this particular series, Stairway to Heaven. So we're going to tie everything up into a glorious finale. Um, that's what we'll do. And um, there's a little vial of stuff for us all to drink at the end. Um, <laughs> jokes. Uh, but um, there is a new series starting in two weeks' time. So I just wanted to tell you about that and the kinds of things we might be talking about. Uh, the series is called Beyond Tribalism. Uh, and here's our, here's our little series of topics before we wrap up with a bit of a... sort of We're going to finish up formation in November there uh, before we hit the Christmas mad season. Um, we're going to talk about Christian empire and the roots of exclusion. Sounds like a fun time. Uh, purity, disgust, and the meaning of love. The body of Christ in a polarized world. Christian faith and religious pluralism, and how do we belong? So that's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about over the next little while. Really, I guess the idea is, I'm one of the things I'm aware of at the moment, and certainly having discussions with others, and just having just turning on the news, is recognizing that uh, we live in a particular time, and maybe it's it's the intersection of um, technology and um, politics and economics and all sorts of things, people are getting increasingly polarised into their, into their camps. You know what I mean? Into their kind of tribes. Uh, and it seems like the level of um, intensity between all of those different camps is definitely on the rise. And I think one of the things that the church needs to think about for, for who we are as a community is what, what does it mean to be the church in the midst of that kind of world? Um, and we've been talking about being, I think generally at Edge over for a period of time, about being a more open and inclusive space. Uh, but then what does belonging look like? So how do you, you know, how do you be a part of something without turning it into a us versus them kind of thing? And so we want to explore some of those dynamics, some of those issues, some of where the, I guess the, the grounds of, of a very exclusive form of Christianity come from and how that's intersected at times with Christian empire and with colonialism, all sorts of other things. Um, and also the language of purity and holiness and the way in which that has both helped and harmed faith communities over the years. Um, and, and then how do we deal in a world now where we, you know, in, in Aotearoa, we're living in an environment with uh, increasingly multiple religious voices as well. So what does it mean to be a Christian and to be a Christian community in that kind of world and how does faith find its way in that journey. So that's the kind of thing we're going to be talking about. Is that all right? Yeah. So I reckon it's going to be good. Just We're just taking on the, the little issues in formation. That's what we like to do. Um, yeah, keep it, keep it light and, and bouncy. Um, so anyway, on that, we've been talking about heaven and hell for a while <laughs> and the end of the world. Um, but what you've probably picked up is that along the way we sort of haven't been talking about the end of the world at the same time. Because hopefully one of the things we've picked up and recognised is that a lot of the language that maybe we have projected out a, a long way into the, or even or a short way or a long way into the future, uh, has not always uh, really been about the future. It's supposed to inform us in our lives, in the present, in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, but a lot of it we've pushed out in front of us 
as this future apocalyptic scenario, whether it be, you know, um, most of the world are going to get themselves sent to a fiery furnace uh, forever, or um, there's that time out there when some mysterious figure is going to rise up and take over the world. So what we've tried to do in this series is, is take a few steps back from all of those assumptions and ask ourselves, what is some of the language in, in the scriptures maybe inviting us into? And maybe it's and, and some different offering some different takes on some of that. So we talked about we did talk about heaven and hell, uh, and how a lot of that language is is about the kind of present reality we're being invited into. Which kingdom, which way of being do you want to participate in? Um, we did talk about the beast and the antichrist. If you um, were here for those ones, who was here for that? A few people, um, and that maybe a lot of the language that we read, especially in the Book of Revelation, is less about some big future Armageddon and much more about how do we relate to oppressive and overwhelming empire, uh, and what does that look like for us now, um, and especially for many of us who probably sit on the privileged side of that equation. Um, and who have historically been a part of the empire rather than the ones oppressed by it. Um, so what does it mean to navigate life in that kind of world, and how does our faith shape us there? So, um, And then a couple of weeks ago, I was away, and I uh, yeah, raptured, you're going, raptured, and, which means you're still here, I think that's... Is that what we decided? Yeah, okay. Um, so what I want to do in our time tonight is have a bit of space for conversation and for some reflection and, um, and stuff and just share a few thoughts around this idea of um, newness. Um, so the title for tonight is Behold I Make thing, All Things New or Do I? Um, in some way because there's this, there is this real um, strong sense of Christian hope in the story that things are heading somewhere ultimately good, that God is somehow going to renew and restore all things. And yet we live in this tension of, um, of real life and what does that actually look like as it unfolds in the present. Um, there's a lot of language for newness in the scripture. And uh, when I was, this is another when I was growing up story. Oh man, I feel like I'm going to have to call time on those at some stage. Um, when I was growing up, uh, that was the best way to give a prophetic word over someone was uh, God is doing a new thing um, or it's a new day or something. And you can't go wrong with new something or other. Uh, I remember being at a meeting in Morrinsville and uh, someone was demonstrating how to prophesy, you know, and sometimes you don't even have a word for someone, but you just walk up to them and you just start talking and you see what comes out, you know. So he demonstrated and he went up to someone and, you know, and it was, uh, behold, it is a new day, says the Lord. Even, yes, a day of new things. And, um, it was like, it was cool, but it was, uh, some of you will be like, I have no idea what, what you're talking about. Um, but it was always like a good old faithful you could whip out if you didn't have much else to say. Um, sometimes, really, really a nice thing to hear. Hey, maybe something new is happening. Um, but also, sort of always kind of true because, I mean, technically every moment is new in its own way, isn't it? Um, anyway, uh, there is this little, there's this little verse that was in particular as, as a favourite. Uh, Isaiah 43, 19, 
I see I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Um, and this part of the book of Isaiah is kind of broken up into three sections, um, probably written by three different or prophesied by three different people. Um, so scholars tend to call it first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. Um, and so chapter one to about chapter 39 is written to the people before they go, in, the people of Israel before they go into exile. So they're still the nation of Israel living in their homeland. Um, and uh, there's a lot of warning in there that if you continue to kind of pursue the path that you're on, you're going to find that this leads somewhere destructive for you. And then from about chapter 40, the whole book shifts gears. Uh, it starts with the words, comfort, comfort my children. Um, and the middle chunk of Isaiah from chapter 40 through to about 55 is the prophetic word given to the people when they are in exile. So, does that make sense? So the first part is pre, when they're still back there doing the naughty things, um, just generally being a, a miserable bunch to everybody. Um, which ultimately is going to lead to some kind of self-destruction. Uh, and then the middle part, now they find themselves in Babylon, you know, that famous, uh, or, or a, bun a bunch of them are in Babylon, and many more have been scattered around the place, people like Esther and others, shout out, um, find themselves in different sort of areas of the ancient Near East at that time as Jerusalem had been uh, destroyed. And... Um, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And so at this point, the, the prophet comes with uh, words of comfort and also with words of hope. Um, the latter part of Isaiah, which is 56 to the end, is once they've gone back to Jerusalem, once they've returned from exile, uh, now what is the word of the, of the prophet to them in this new time? Um, so, in this, so this particular passage comes in that middle phase when they're actually, they are a bit, desolate and thinking, is this kind of it? Is this whole thing over now? Because if you think about their journey as the people of Israel, it was uh, a bunch of slaves who get liberated, who form a nation, who then see themselves and, and they have this special relationship with God whereby they are you know, God's chosen people and they are to be a, a light to the nations and a, and a holy priesthood and all of this kind of language. Um, and the throne of David will last forever and there'll be no end. And so that sounds pretty good. Uh, and then it's all destroyed. Jerusalem is ruined. The temple's been burnt to the ground uh, and everybody's been scattered. Uh, and so there's this genuine feeling of maybe the whole thing's over. Maybe that's it. It's done. Uh, and what does that mean then for what we think about God and what we think about uh, who we are and our identity and the meaning of our lives. And so this little verse is a part of a wider um, word from the prophet who says, this is not the end. Uh, there is something new that is underway. Can't you perceive it? Can't you, can't you sense it? And probably a lot of them are like, nope, <laughs> not really. But uh, there's this invitation to open your eyes to there's a dominant story that's happening. And this, this happens a lot, I think, especially in the Old Testament, where there's a dominant story happening. And then there's this subversive counter story that's happening underneath, which is often where God is 
genuinely at, at work in among the people which are saying, even though this is what you're confronted with and this is the big story you're being told and you, it's all over, there's actually another story happening under the surface which is that maybe God is up to something else. Maybe something new is afoot. Yeah? Um, this one is a bit better than, there was a similar verse that used to get used. Uh, used to get used? Does that make grammatical sense? I feel like there's something awkward about that sentence. It's okay? Oh. Two youths. Yeah. You are used. Yeah, yeah. It has been used. Yeah. It has been used. Frequently used? Used many times. I feel like we could just we could play this out for a while. Um <laughs> Habakkuk one. Uh this one used to get said a lot at youth group. I haven't got it on the screen actually, but uh, when I was at youth, this one it was a favourite of the youth pastors. I don't think they ever read past this little bit. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you had, even if you were told. Um, which was always like, oh, this is so exciting. And then uh, the next verse, <laughs> if you read down, because we always used to get uh, you know, inspired by that one, very exciting. And then one day I, I just, I actually opened my Bible and read the next bit. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then it goes on to talk about how they're going to come through and destroy everybody. Uh, so we're not going to take that one for today. We're going to take the, uh, this one, which is much nicer. Um, so there's this, there's this repeated language of, of newness and of new life that follows devastation. And it's a theme that runs right throughout the, the biblical story. Uh, and there's language of, that we've explored already in this series of new heavens and new earth. Uh, there's language of new creation. Uh, Paul uses that language to describe something that's happened in us. Uh, Jesus uses that phrase of being born again, which is a, a, a if you say it in an American accent, it sounds, you know, awesome. Um, and when I was young, it was definitely a, how could, who, how could you tell which Christians were born again Christians and which Christians were not born again Christians, <laughs> uh, which was a weird kind of differentiation between the real ones and the not real ones, but you could always figure it out. Um, in fact, much of this language of newness is often connected to the to the presence and the work of the Spirit as well in in the scriptures. So, in Genesis, you have uh, this darkness or water or sort of void or formless shape, uh, and, and there's the, it says the Spirit is hovering over over that over the waters. And, and the idea within the ancient Jewish mind is that. Uh, then when God speaks, let there be, then the Spirit gives new life to these things and so gives these things form and, and shape. And even though it's, the, it's kind of a, it's a mythical poetic telling of the story, the idea there is this notion of God's Spirit being that which brings about new life and new creation and upholds and sustains all things. Uh, and then you see as you go through that kind of refrain repeat, not just an original uh, stories of creation, but in all of the stories of recreation that get told throughout the narrative. So um, you get something like uh, Ezekiel 37, where again, prophets speaking to the Israel when they're at a really low point in their history, and Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones, 
and then he prophesies to the to the wind and to the breath and to the and the spirit comes and gives life to these bones uh, and they become this this people uh, and so here again the spirit who is seen as giving life in the first instance is now giving new life again where life and hope have been lost and this again is a thread that follows through into the new testament and so uh, uh, even Jesus own story of resurrection um, is said to be a, a, a new life and a resurrection that is brought about by the Spirit. And so Paul would say something like, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is also at work and alive in us. And so there's this work of the Spirit that's associated with creation and then with newness and new life and new creation all the way through the text. Um, And we get right towards the end uh, of the Bible, Revelation, which we've already tackled in a few different ways uh, in this series. Uh, and, and in John's depictions of, of events, this, this God at this point says, chapter 21, I think it is, Behold, I am making all things new. And I think once again, probably our tendency is to jump ahead and to be like, right, yes, he's making all things new one day. Um, and, and I think there's something really natural in us that longs for that kind of future. And I do myself. I, I like and long for the day when maybe when things will actually be genuinely put right somehow. And I don't um, know exactly what that looks like or exactly what that means. Um, but I also know that if I think too much about that out there, then I might not perceive, to use Isaiah's language, uh, the making of all things new that might be at work already in um, the present. Yeah? All right. I'm going to give you a chance to talk soon. Don't worry. Just in case you're worried. Some of you look worried. Um, a couple of months ago, we were doing a, a series on Sunday mornings called Whakapono. Anyone come to any of that? Anyone? Oh, I see that hand. More than five. Um, I mentioned a, a particular... Oh, maybe I don't have it on a slide, eh? I don't. No, I don't. That's a question. Oh, teaser. Um, there's a quote from a favourite theologian of mine, Jürgen Moltmann, who, who says, We are still involved in the experience of renewal and the, cup, and the becoming new travels with us. And I really love that phrase as a way of thinking about this thing that God is doing and the making of things new, this becoming new that travels with us. Uh, I think it's probably true that Christians have a tendency, and maybe it's, I don't think it's just a Christian thing, I think it's a human experience, right? Which is to look back or to look forward and sometimes to struggle to look at right, what's happening right here and now. And so uh, even language of newness sometimes is about can be about the past, back when that thing happened that was new. or um, And so the, the classic kind of Christian language of, oh, that time when, when I got saved, you know, um, that kind of language, uh, which looks back to something um, or looks forward to a time when things will be made new out there. And sometimes I think those things are really, really beneficial and helpful for us. But if all we do is see them behind us or before us and we, and we don't see them here, don't see it here with us now, then we can miss some of what maybe God is up to 
in the present, under the surface of the story of our lives in intriguing and beautiful ways. Um, yeah? So, I do have a question for you. And we'll see how this goes. It is, it is a little bit of a looking back question. But the idea is not um, to look back as a way of saying that was a thing back then, but is to, to I guess, ask the question of, of what it is or what it looks like when newness finds its way into and out of our experience of life. So here's a question. Can you describe an experience when you felt like something new, surprising and sacred emerged in your life? Cool. So I would love for you to discuss that question uh, with some people who you are around who you might feel comfortable discussing that question with. If your answer is, um, nope, <laughs> then that's cool. Uh, and otherwise, there might be some stories that, that you can think of and reflect on. It might take you a minute or two to consider them or to think of them. Uh, but we'll just have that kind of discussion for a few minutes. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. Have a chat. Hello again. Um, so it's a bit disappointing so far because we haven't talked about, you know, what God's going to do at the end at all. Um, but I feel like this conversation is actually uh, probably the most relevant or, or much more relevant to us than a wild theory about what might happen in the future. Um, does anyone have anything that came up in their group conversation that they wouldn't mind sharing with the larger group? Uh, any? Yes. Yeah, so um, from, well, sort of the theme in our group was uh, big, significant, life-changing events. Um, so my, my example was the birth of my son 22 years ago. Um, was a, just a magical moment. Um, but then a lot of what came up with were really small things. Um, so um, um, I forget whose example it was, um, of, of a new... Um, flower growing um, that that you didn't plant or maybe you did plant and it, it, it came up and so we had a few examples of of just things that have happened hundreds of times before but every time you experience them it's it's thrilling and it feels new and then also these really significant things and uh, um, the other thing that came up um, was was where at the time you're experiencing it it's really a lot of turmoil um, but looking back it's um, you look back and see it's it was actually really a life changing thing, but that was someone else's story, so you can say that if you want, but <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks. That's cool. Anyone else wanna say? Here's a hand. Just listening to um the people in my group, and we have all completely different experiences. And I thought, oh, what? But what I've noticed was that all of us, in order to have our experiences, we needed to not be rigid, be open, and maybe um, break out of routines and try something without knowing. It just um, the outcome. So that was more sort of, it struck me, the attitude, what it required of each of us in order to have um, 
experience something new, surprising, and sacred. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Anybody else? Oh. Yeah. Craig, you'd like to share something? <laughs> Greg, two hands up. Does that mean you want to say something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So you know, yeah, go on. Uh, in our group, we talked. We we just played with the idea where um, the writer in Ecclesiastes says, "There's nothing new under the sun," and so we just we, we we talked about that, and we talked about how it's not the thing that's new, like a a child being born. It's it's more the thing behind the thing, the experience or the feeling you feel behind the thing, because the thing is not new. Your shoes are not. Everyone's got you know. Something's happening, the flowers, the growing trees, all that. They're, they're new, but it's the thing behind the thing that is new. Like the experience, the feeling. What, how did it make you feel? Like when I was saying, saying to Esther, when, when I first saw Leah, uh, other babies had been born and she was another girl and there were thousands of other girls probably born in that same moment, but it was the feeling the experience of that moment that was new to me, that was newness. The thing behind the thing. <laughs> yes. We can tell that the sacredness of it because of the change because it has gone beyond whatever we thought it was going to be. So it's gone beyond our own design and it's always greater than what we started out with, the idea of that thing, of that change being. And if we go back to the beginning of it, it's often, we all said that it was quite, um, often quite scary because it was going to challenge us to go beyond something that we knew, which is where the sacredness enters. Great. Wonderful insights in the group. Anyone else? Oh, in for a second time. <laughs> uh, we never got time to mention this during our group discussion, but one of the things that had popped up was sometimes I'll be stuck in the traffic driving to work and um, and really nothing is inspiring me. And, um, I'll, and I'm down about probably being late for work. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll just sort of think, ah, oh, you know what, I'm alive, I'm... Uh, kind of like I think, therefore I am. Like, like heck, I exist. You know, I'm not just a rock over there that doesn't perceive what's going on. This is actually amazing. Like, like no one can actually ex explain. Scientists no will never be able to explain why we actually perceive that we're here. You know, it's just this miracle that every single person is, and and with almost nothing else going on, just being aware that you're here is, um, is is this miracle that God has made is. I think also quite fascinating. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Sorry, I only just thought of this, but something I think is interesting is the idea that in many ways newness is like a commitment to something. Like because we probably have so many times in our lives where we're like, "I've been made new, and I've like changed, and now I'm like special, and everything's different." And then you can go back and be exactly who you were before you might have just like think that, you know, you might just think that you've changed and you haven't. And like you do actually have to commit 
to being new and have to like remind yourself of it otherwise like what's what's the point of that magical experience if it doesn't lead to anything yeah <laughs> thanks well it's wonderful to hear the things that are going on in the conversation and minds and the unique mystery of human consciousness just touched on that briefly didn't we um it is a curious thing. Um, being human itself is, an, is a curious thing. So you don't often think about it all the time, maybe in traffic as an opportunity. Um, but uh, so much of our lives is, takes us out of ourselves in that sense. But um, there is this invitation to to be present in one's own life and in one's own experience and to allow ourselves to sense what it is that might be happening in us and around us and among us. Um, and I think a lot of the time maybe we are far too frantic to notice the newness. Um, and I think too I was just talking with, with Greg and Esther before about how I think, you know, we've almost, we've created the possibility of, uh, we've sort of commodified newness in some sense so that we can, um, we don't have to really pause and pay attention and sink into ourselves and into our real experience of life because we can go and just go and purchase some newness um, and then carry on at the same frantic speed that we were before, having now had that burst of new feeling. Um, but one that doesn't, one that might be nice, but doesn't necessarily uh, foster a, a deepening sense of what it is to be alive in the world. Um, cool. Lots of things I could say there, but I think what we will do is pause for a short breather and a cup of tea, and um, and then we'll come back and move towards wrapping up the series and then have some dinner together. Cool. All right. Short break. Oh, perfect timing. Music. All right. You going okay out there? I'm so glad I moved closer. Feels much better, especially because the space is very vacant. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Little. Yeah. That's good. That's so. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. Maybe a little bit. Um. So I, I thought the interesting thing about this question, um, if we're reflecting on this idea of something new and 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 I almost I I really played with also asking you this question, um. Have there been times in your life when you desperately wanted something new to unfold, but it wouldn't? <laughs> and I feel like that question would be way easier to answer in some respect, or I think I'd have a lot more answers to that question than the other. Um, <laughs> but it's probably good I didn't ask that question. Eh? Let's, not, let's not bring the buzz down too, too low. Um, <laughs> but I know that feeling. Uh, that feeling of of feeling like you really are in 
need of something new. Um, whether it's a specific thing you're wanting to see emerge or unfold in your life or whether it's just you know that you, you're in need of something new in your story. Um, and I know that feeling well, I think. Uh, and so what we find ourselves is, is this, this language of newness and of new creation and of behold, I'm doing a new thing and we can reflect on those experiences of newness in our lives and yet um, they don't describe all of our reality, do they? No? In fact, I guess the experience of newness wouldn't be an experience of newness unless the other parts of life didn't feel that way. Or you could say that. Um, and the scriptures are really honest about this as well. If you read the Bible from front to back, just casually, you know, over breakfast, um, you probably find that it's not just like, oh man, things are going to be amazing um, just for, you know, 66 books of that. It would get a bit tiring uh, and it's, it, it doesn't reflect the real ambiguity of life, which is uh, that we hold and walk out this tension of, of hope and disappointment and of newness and of oldness. <laughs> Um, or at least the lack of newness. It's different from oldness, I think, uh, if oldness is a thing. Um, this hope for something new that, that doesn't eventuate. Uh, Walter Brueggemann talks about the Old Testament in terms of this idea of testimony and counter-testimony. And so you see these wonderful passages of Scripture that testify to the, the great things that God is doing. And then these counter-testimonies, which if I was going to write a sacred book for everyone to follow, my wonderful wisdom, you know, if I was like, yeah, I'm going to sit down and write a book that everyone's going to read for thousands of years. It's going to guide them in the ways of life. I don't think I'd include quite so much protest in mine. Um, and yet all the way through the scripture are these beautiful stories of, and, and testimonies and, and of how good God is and the good things God is doing mixed with accusations and protests and God, you're miserable and where have you gone and life is terrible and I don't like this anymore. Please make it stop. Um, and, and I really like that both of those aspects find their way right the way through um, the biblical narrative. Uh, I even think about wisdom literature. Um, so there are these, these wisdom books in the Bible. The book of Proverbs, for example, that's a good one. Uh, 31 chapters, one for every day of the month. And, um, and it's full of great wisdom for life. Some of it seems a little dated, but much of it is... is, is, is anyway, it, it runs afoul of the law in a few places, is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> with its passion for um, physical discipline of children. Um, but there is great wisdom in, in the book of Proverbs, ancient kind of wisdom. Um, and yet you also have the book of Job, uh, which is like the opposite to the book of Proverbs and is also and is the most ancient book probably in our whole biblical text, uh, the one that was written first. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a strange story actually. Um, but many scholars feel like it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a thought experiment of what happens when, when essentially none of the wisdom works. When you, when you do all the things you're supposed to do uh, and life turns out way worse um, than all the proverbs say, 
right? So Proverbs tells you if you, you know, if you honour these people, you live a long and wonderful life. And if you do this, and if you're generous, then your world will enlarge and it'll be tremendous. And you know, if you, um, oh, there's other things in there too, trusting in the Lord, stuff like that. Um, all of these beautiful invitations into a wise way of living, which will ensure that your life flourishes and is long and successful. Uh, and then the book of Job, which is like the guy who did all of that and his life was a complete miserable ruin. Um, <laughs> down buzz, sorry. Um, and the question in the book of Job is what's the response to that? How do we respond to life when that's the reality that unfolds rather than all of the glorious, wonderful um, proverb affirmations uh, that we would like to come our way? And, and so the Bible is full of this. Uh, when you read the Psalms, they're full of this. Oh God, you're wonderful and great and excellent and I love you and I think you're amazing. And then God, you're terrible and you've left me behind and this is all miserable and here I am stuck with no hope. Um, and the Psalms move between these kind of testimony and counter-testimony all the way through. Um, and, and the role of the prophet, if you like, in or, or one of the roles of the prophet uh, within the biblical narrative is to offer, um, as you'll have heard many times if you've been around each for a while, something the, the prophetic imagination, which is, is a book by Walter Brueggemann, who's a wonderful Old Testament scholar. Um, and, and a lot of what this prophetic imagination is about is, is the... Um, the voice of the divine somehow emerging in the community in a way that points forward to a different kind of reality. Not even points forward to a different kind of reality, but says maybe there's something different going on even here and now than you might otherwise assume or think. Uh, and so um, the prophets continue to emerge and say, hey, uh, especially in times of devastation or in times of suffering or in times of when you are experiencing uh, the Job side of the wisdom story, uh, the prophets emerge and, and offer us a, and imagine for us a different kind of reality. And so that maybe it is that God wants to uh, open our perception, open us up uh, to the idea of something new unfolding um, that's not always reliant on new circumstances unfolding, but is sometimes about something new unfolding in the way in which we actually perceive and experience the life that we are living. Does that make sense, that sentence? I felt like it might have, but I had my doubts halfway through. Um, and so there's this, there's this beautiful invitation to, and, and I think uh, here's when we, a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, language of the beast and the empire and the book of Revelation and this contrast between the violence and power and might of Rome in the first century at that time who were able to essentially uh, control the story, control the narrative. Because a lot of life in some ways is about the story that we're told and the story that we're living out, right? And in the first century, Rome controlled the narrative. They gave you the story about reality. This is the way the world is. Uh, and yet in the book of Revelation, uh, the author there, John, uh, says maybe there's something else going on in this story that ultimately is more powerful than, than the story you're being told by Rome. 
and maybe it's going to be uh, that uh, love and self-giving and the testimony of people who follow the way of Christ will ultimately, even if it doesn't look like it now, be much more powerful in the end than all of the forces of, of an empire and its ability to control the story and tell everybody what's going on and how to be and what to do and how to behave and how to fit in so that the system keeps working. Uh, and so we are offered this, I think, in Christianity, this potential um, subversive imagination. Because we live in a time where we are told certain kinds of stories, right? About the way the world is about the things that matter, about all of the stuff that we should invest our time and energy and resource worrying about and being concerned about. And yet, to me, one of the things I find still compelling about the story of Jesus and about Christianity is uh, this refusal to just accept that story. Uh, but this invitation to say, maybe God's up to something else. Um, because sometimes living in the world can feel a bit overwhelming. Yeah? Sometimes. Some of you are like just, you know, the kinds of people for whom maybe that experience doesn't happen very often. But for some of us, life can sometimes feel overwhelming. It just comes at you and it feels like there's no, other, there's no way around this freight train of life in 2018 and everything that comes with it and everything that it demands of us uh, and demands that we spend our energies and time and money uh, worrying and being anxious about. And yet here we continue to be, I think, invited into a prophetic imagination, which is to say there's something else at work and unfolding here. Um, a new thing, if we would perceive it. Um, yes, Linda. I will do a new thing, but then it says, but will you not perceive it? And so that's the key for me, that verse. Like, um, and to perceive something means that we have to stop for long enough to notice that it's happening, you know? And I think what you're talking about, the overwhelming nature of life, just comes at us like a freight train. We have to stop ourselves somehow and just go, to stop and perceive something, you know, and then let that become the new thing because... <clears throat> if we don't do that, we just it just got overwhelms us. So I think that's the key for that me in that scripture. That word will you not perceive it? Will you not notice it? You know, I think of Catalina. Will you not be mindful? <laughs> you know, just be mindful. Slow down. No. Oh sorry. No? <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Um Yes, and in fact, I think one of the ways in which the, the freight train uh, keeps rolling is by telling us we don't have time to stop and, and do that. And in a sense, that's the way the system works, right? Because uh, it has to keep you so busy, you can't stop to pause to recognise that actually the system is, is, is bung. <laughs> um, and so, and you know, this is not like, oh, the whole world is a terrible place. It's just like, there are, but there are... There are ways of being in the world that are life-giving and flourishing and bring us into uh, what it really means to be alive and to be human and to be, and to be living in a, in a beautiful way. 
and then there are there is just all this other stuff that comes at us that that sometimes overwhelms that. Um, and so this idea of making all things new um, points forward, but only in a way to enliven the present. Uh, all of the, and that's part of the whole point of the, of the story of the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus, who sits at the centre of the Christian faith and the Christian story, uh, the full ambiguity of human experience is present in that story. Right? He's got some good times. The newness, the, the, the Christmas story, that's always a, that's a fun one because it's all like angels singing in the sky and shepherds washing their flocks. What are they doing to their flocks? I don't know. Watching, yeah, no, it was that carol. I used to get the, um, I used to get the words confused and I think it was about washing socks, but it was about watch, uh, watching flocks. Is that? Yeah. What are they? Yeah. Um, but Christmas is like a really exciting festival. Um, and presents kind of embody that, albeit a horrendously commodified but still um, irresistible form of... Um, <laughs> doing Christmas, uh, at its heart, it's a nice thing, right? Which is, which is this idea of bringing, new, bringing an awareness of newness into people's experience. Um, but the other major festival of the Christian story is like the flip side of that, which is um, then we go into Lent and that's all like, that's all, you know, fasting and wilderness and, uh, and all that because that's the full experience of, that's the human story and the human experience. Um, and even the resurrection of Jesus, which in some ways is supposed to point us forward and, and does point us forward because the idea in the New Testament in some way is somehow what happens in this uh, resurrection story, this renewal story in Jesus is symbolic of what God is unfolding in creation itself. Uh, and so... Um, Paul, for example, at times talks about all of creation groaning in anticipation of its own journey, really, through the same thing that Jesus experiences. And so we're all caught up in this experience of following Christ through uh, the story of Easter into something, some kind of new life. But the beautiful thing about the story of Jesus is that the resurrection, which good first century Jews believed only happened a long way in the future, if if they believed in resurrection, which not all of them did, if they did, then resurrection belonged well to the future. And yet the story of Jesus kind of breaks into that and says, what if resurrection, what if that kind of new life starts to unfold now, not just then? And, uh, and so there is this invitation in the Christian story to perceive something new, the perception of something new even uh, unfolding um, if we can slow down and pay attention uh, and allow ourselves to be caught up in that different kind of way of seeing the world. It's making sense? Yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, was that a hand or is that uh, itching? The, I couldn't tell. Yes. Um, there's this talk about emergent living versus fixed point living and sort of um, that we often, we look to the future and we have a point in mind and sort of 
actually our lives narrow to that point when it's actually the invitation is to turn it around, to start in the here now and emerge. And so it will widen, um, which makes for sort of more new surprising and hopefully sacred living. That's a beautiful image. Could everyone hear that? Where you were? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like what, what our faith journey uh, at its best does invite us into is this is an opening up of our lives. That was certainly um, my journey, I guess, from a very constrained form of Christianity, um, if that's the best way to put it, one that continued to bring me in in many ways, which carries its own kind of potency because when you bring something in and you put quite tight boundaries around it and quite tight borders around it, it's like forcing water through a narrow channel and it, and it gives a strong sense of, oh, this is exciting and fantastic and everything I'm doing is like the most, it's because it's all, it's all coming together right here and right now. Um, but over time, that pressure can actually start to become quite unhealthy and, and destructive. And I remember I was at an engagement party of a friend and there must have been about 40 or 50 people that I had been um, at youth with back in the day and we were all very, you know, we're very good, excited bunch for the Lord. Um, and, and, I, and we're a very passionate group um, but all within this quite, narrow, constrained frame of, of what it meant to have faith and to be a Christian and to find our way in the world. And I looked around and I think maybe there were two people who still were engaged in church in some kind of way out of maybe, maybe 40 or 50 of these people that I had known. And, and in that sense, and it's not that engaging, I, I had conversations with lots of them where there was still a real curiosity and interest in, in something spiritual, but just an exhaustion with the system of religion that they had been a part of that had kind of, it had squeezed a whole lot of energy out of them, but then carried on squeezing. <laughs> um, and so I am, and my, my own journey has been one of walking somehow past that place and, and where I now feel like the, the walls are, or the, the path is widening. Um, and into a much more spacious place. And I think that's, in my sense of things, what good spirituality should do for us is to lead us into spacious, uh, a spacious place. Um, and so that's what I think a part of the making of all things new looks like. Um, so can we pray? And then I reckon, that, I reckon that's a good place to tidy up. Is that all right? You're going to just dash to the jackfruit. <laughs> Renee's been involved in the kitchen making marvellous dinner. Um, would you like to stand up? That would seem like a great thing to do. It's very, you know, it gets you in the zone. <laughs> um. So in some ways, what we haven't done 
is give you a real fixed point and say this is exactly how things are going to look one day. Um, but what I hope we can, I hope we are, what we are invited to see is that the story of Jesus invites us into a journey of allowing uh, us to, to see the new thing that is unfolding. And that ultimately what it tells us is the story of a God who is good and a God who we can trust and a God who is taking this journey somewhere that is broadening and that is a place of flourishing and that ultimately uh, God is taking all of this somewhere beautiful and somewhere good. Um, so I'll pray and then we'll have some dinner. God, we thank you that you are present. Um, you are here and now. Help us to pause a little more often. To hear and to see and notice that there's something happening under the surface of our lives that if we would perceive it, we might see that it is beautiful and good. And for those of us for whom maybe uh, life feels a bit like a freight train that is out of control, would you somehow, even in this moment, bring us back to a sense uh, of trust and of hope and a promise of something new unfolding in our story that might be life-giving to us? Would you help us to be a community where this newness is not just some kind of individual experience, but is something that unfolds and emerges among us in our relationships with each other and the way we see one another and treat one another that we might participate somehow in a different way of being in the world that doesn't just give in to the dominant story but is alive with the possibilities of something different. Amen. Yes, Luke. Maybe just a Bible verse to finish. How does that sound? No, I just as Katarina, as you were talking about sort of expanding out, and you had talked about the spacious place, uh, verse in Job came to mind. It says, But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. What great timing. There is no better segue into dinner than that. That was really nice. Thank you, Lou. All right, Renee, did you want to say something? Thank you, Michael. That was beautiful. 
and all the contributors. Um, so that was that wonderful session. Um, tonight for dinner we're doing – I'm just jumping straight over to, to dinner mode now. We're going to do um, – it's a vegan pulled pork. So – Something for everyone. You'll figure out. You either know what that means or you will figure out what that means, but it's going to be good. So come come on up and eat that. It's just a koha for dinner. Um, and likewise, as per the usual notices, um, yeah, I don't know, actually. Just uh, thinking about giving if you ever – so koha for dinner and, and then just a reminder that there are many ways to contribute here. So if you ever – find that you want to get involved or do more there's plenty to do and there's plenty of other ways to give so yeah that's all thank you for tonight and enjoy oh does I wanted to do a tereo prayer for dinner but I can't remember it does anyone have it in their head from class who wants to do it I can't remember it um so I'll just do an English version for prayer for dinner um etiatua Thank you for this food. Thank you for this time together. Um, I pray that we'll just um, be able to continue this beautiful space and conversation over food together. Visit to our needs. Amen. <laughs> 